This story has lots of themes running through it. Let me pick out three to keep in mind as you listen. The first one's a challenge. Asking us if we really believe everything's in God's control, to the point that we're going to keep trusting him whatever happens. The second theme is about reversals, seen in God using the weak in the world to lead the strong and in having the enemies of God seeking his blessing while the people of God stay fearful. The final theme questions our obedience and if we're willing to obey God even when what he tells us to do seems crazy and for no other reason than that he's told us it's what we need to do to have his blessing. Now, we don't know the name of the girl in this story so I'm going to call her Miriam. However, we can work out some things about Miriam from the Bible and from what was happening at that time in Israel. For instance, we know that she was very young at the time of this story and she probably lived in the north of Israel, close to the border with Aram, Aram being Israel's greatest enemy at that time. She also probably lived in a small town or village, more open to raids than a fortified city. And we can tell that Miriam was brought up in a household that loved God and taught her about the wonderful and powerful God of Israel, a God for whom nothing was too difficult. We also know that God had a very special plan for this young girl, a plan to bless others and to bring great glory to his name. However, we also know that for that plan to happen, Miriam would have to go through a time of terrible suffering. It was God's plan and he remained in control and still loved her and would look after her. But for his plan for her life to come about, it was going to be very costly. You see, while Miriam was still very young, raiders came down from Aram and did what raiders do. We don't know what happened to Miriam's parents or to her home, but we do know that these raiders abducted Miriam and took her as a slave to Aram, probably never to return home again. But God didn't leave Miriam alone. He didn't abandon her, but watched over her. What she saw and what she experienced we can only imagine, yet the Lord was leading her to the place he wanted her to be. And even though it's hard to understand, God's will for Miriam was for her to become a slave, the handmaiden of an important woman in Aram. And this woman was important because she was married to the leader of the armies of Aram, General Naaman, a man second only in importance to the king of Aram, who was very fond of General Naaman because the Lord had given Naaman many great victories over Aram's enemies. One other thing we know about Miriam was that she was truly a child of God. Why would I say that? Because God is a God of love. He loves us even when we don't deserve it, even when we've pretty much broken every command he's ever given. And Miriam showed herself to be a child of God because she loved her new masters. Even after all that had happened to her, after all she'd seen and suffered, Miriam loved Naaman and his wife. And we know this because once, when Miriam went to see her mistress, she must have found her distressed. But because she loved her mistress, she gathered up her courage to ask what was wrong. No doubt once she'd asked, the story tumbled out of Naaman's wife as it all became too much to bear. It's my husband, Naaman, she told Miriam through her tears. He's got leprosy. Today, we don't hear much about leprosy because a cure was discovered some years ago. But in Miriam's time, everyone knew about leprosy. The mere mention of it brought fear and panic, with some even thinking that death was preferable to getting leprosy. Why? Because at least with death, the suffering stops. 
while with leprosy it left you living year after year, suffering, isolated and alone. The first thing that happened when you got leprosy was that you were forced to stay away from everyone in case they caught the disease from you. So Naaman would never be able to hold his wife or his children again, never be able to share a meal or be in the same building. While at the same time, the disease disfigured him, eventually leading to the point where he'd no longer want his loved ones to even look at him. For now, with some restrictions, he was still the general of the armies of Aram, but that wouldn't last. And soon, the proud general would become the despised beggar, fearful of being near other people in case they threw rocks at him to force him to stay away. All this went through Miriam's mind in an instant at the mention of leprosy. It was then that Miriam showed herself to be a child of God, and it was now that God was to use this young, apparently insignificant slave girl to move kings to bring himself great glory. Because instead of feeling pleased that Naaman and his wife were suffering as she herself had suffered, Miriam's heart overflowed with love for them, and almost without thinking she blurted out, Oh my mistress, if only Naaman would go and see the prophet in Samaria, Samaria being the capital city of Israel, he'd heal my master of his leprosy. Now, normally, Naaman's wife would have looked at this young slave girl and simply smiled sadly and said, Miriam, don't be so silly. Everyone knows that leprosy can't be healed. But she didn't, because God was at work. And so, instead of ignoring Miriam, Naaman's wife ran to her husband and called out from a distance, Naaman, my husband, Miriam's told me of a prophet in Samaria who can heal you of your leprosy. Now, normally... Naaman would have looked sorrowful at his wife and explained the impossibility of what she was saying. But God was at work, because instead Naaman believed his wife and hurried to the king of Aram. Your majesty, he called, my slave girl from Israel has told me of a prophet in Samaria who can heal me of my leprosy. Now, normally, the king would have told Naaman how foolish he was to hold on to such a false hope. But God was at work, so instead he said, Well, in that case, you must go at once, and I'll write a letter to the king of Israel about you. And with that, he wrote a letter saying, With this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman so that you can heal him of his leprosy. The letter was given to Naaman's servant, and then they raced off to Israel in their chariots. No sooner did they arrive than Naaman's servant jumped off his chariot, went to the palace and handed the letter to the king's secretary, who gave it to the king. The king of Israel took one look at the letter from the king of Aram and ripped it open. With this letter, he read, I'm sending you my servant Naaman so that you can heal him of his leprosy. Who does he think I am? The king cried. Does he think I'm God that I can kill people and bring them back to life again? Or heal this man of his disease? Then he thought for a moment, panic creeping into his eyes. It's a trap of some sort. He's trying to pick a fight with me. And with that, he ripped his clothes in dismay. Now, if there's one thing you can't do in a palace, it's keep a secret. No sooner had the king ripped his clothes than the gossip spread through the palace, and then the whole city, like wildfire, everyone telling everyone else about what the king had done and about that letter. And so, in no time at all, the news of what the king had done and about the general with leprosy reached the house of the prophet Elisha. Now, the king of Israel should have been the one calling on the God of Israel when faced with a terrible situation like this, 
and the irony wasn't lost on Elisha that, instead, it was a foreigner from the land of their enemies who was looking for the help of the God of Israel. So, in a gentle rebuke to the king, Elisha sent a message to him, asking why he'd ripped his clothes, and then telling him to send Naaman to him, which the king was only too delighted to do. So shortly after, Naaman's chariot and the chariots of his servants, along with gifts for the prophet of gold, silver and beautiful sets of clothes, pulled to a stop in a cloud of dust outside the house of the prophet Elisha. Almost before the chariot stopped, Naaman's servant stepped down and walked to the door. And just as he was about to knock, the door swung open, and standing there was someone very obviously not Elisha, but a servant. And almost without even looking at Naaman's servant, or Naaman himself, who got down from his chariot and stood at some distance watching carefully, the servant said, Elisha says to tell your master to go and wash seven times in the river Jordan and he'll be made better. Then he shut the door, leaving Naaman's servant looking not a little surprised. However, Naaman was furious. As his servant looked across at him, Naaman's face turned bright red with rage. The least I thought he'd do is come and wave his hands over the spots on my skin and call on the name of his God and heal me, yelled Naaman. And why on earth should I wash in the dirty river Jordan? Aren't the rivers in my home cleaner and better? Why couldn't I wash in one of those? And he stormed off in a rage like a spoilt child. Thankfully, God had given Naaman wise servants who followed at a safe distance and after giving their master a moment or two to calm down started asking him some questions. Sir, they said, if the prophet had asked you to do something really difficult so that you could get better, would you have done it? Well, of course I would, said Naaman, turning to give his servants the full force of his angry stare. Then, sir, they continued, is it really so much to ask that you go and wash in the River Jordan seven times? Naaman knew they were right, and he knew that if he didn't do exactly what God had said, there wouldn't be any hope of being healed, that he could wash all he liked in any other river, and it wouldn't heal him. But he didn't want to say it out loud. So, with a final withering glare at his servants, he stormed off back to his chariot, whipped the horses, and charged off down to the River Jordan. Even before the chariot had stopped, Naaman jumped down and throwing his clothes off right, left and centre, he stomped down the river bank into the river and standing waist deep in the water, he turned to stare at his servants who were just arriving. Then without saying a word, he ducked down under the water and came up, still glaring at his servants and pointing to the spots on his arms which were completely unchanged. The servants looked very nervous, but then one of them said, "'Sir, the prophet did say you have to wash seven times?' Naaman's eyes narrowed until they were just slits in his angry red face. But without another word, he ducked down again a second time. Then a third time, a fourth time, fifth and a sixth time. Then coming back up, with the water streaming off his body, he looked at his arms and then again at his servants, pointing to the completely unchanged spots. Now very nervous, the servant reminded him, "'Sir, seven times?' So taking a long, angry breath, Naaman dunked himself under the water a seventh time, and as he came up, water cascading off his head and filling his eyes, he pointed to his arms. But as his eyes started to focus, all the waterlogged hair on his arms and his whole body did its very best to stand on end, for Naaman suddenly felt very afraid because he realised he'd been in the presence of the living God of Israel for his skin was clean 
completely free from spots and as firm as that of a young boy. So, slowly, Naaman came up out of the water, all anger gone. His servants crowded around him. He was no longer isolated, and the whole party, rejoicing, made their way back to Elisha's house. This time, Elisha himself came out to see them, and Naaman stepped forward to meet him. Now I know, he said, that in all the world there is no God except the God of Israel. Then after a moment's pause he added, I've brought some gifts with me, please take them. But Elisha refused. So Naaman said, Then sir, please would you allow me to take back with me as much soil as two donkeys can carry, so that I can worship your God on soil from your country. But may I ask one thing from your God? When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of his God to worship and leans on my arms so that I bow down with him, please would your God not hold that against me? Go in peace, said Elisha. And so Naaman returned to Aram, changed on the outside, but even more importantly, changed on the inside by an encounter with the living God. And through all this, we see that God was in control. Even when terrible things happened to one of his children, he was moving to have his child in the right place at the right time. And it shows that in God's economy, he can, and in fact often does, use the weak things to shame the strong. A little slave girl with such faith, in comparison to the king of Israel, who ripped his clothes rather than trust in God. And it shows us that what God requires of us isn't our understanding. It didn't make sense to Naaman to wash in the river Jordan when there were better rivers in his own country. Instead, he requires our obedience if we're to receive his blessing, even when it means we end up washing in a muddy river.